Welcome to the Practical Missions Podcast. I'm your host. Before we get into today's interview, I just want to say a big thank you to everyone who has been listening to the Practical Missions Podcast over the last couple of years. We are approaching 10,000 downloads, and that is a number that blows my mind. I never thought we would have the consistent number of listeners that we do or the reach that we do. We have people from all over the world listening to the podcast. It's humbling and it's encouraging to know that so many cross-cultural workers from all over the world doing all different things are listening to this podcast and benefiting from the interviews. So thanks so much for listening and please share the podcast with people who you think are going to be interested or will benefit from it. As you know, everything we do on the Practical Missions podcast is anonymous. So the only way we can get the word out is by you sharing. So thank you so much for doing that. Also, another thing I wanted to share with you is that I've changed the host company that I've been using to host the podcast. I used to be using SoundCloud and now I'm using Buzzsprout and I've changed because Buzzsprout actually gives me control over the show notes that I didn't have before. So hopefully you'll see down in the show notes, things are a bit more organized and helpful for you. We have timestamps down there so you can look at the podcast and see if there's any topics that would be particularly interesting to you. And of course, you can find all those things at the website pmpod.org. All right, now Now let's get into today's episode. While I'm interviewing somebody who's been in missions for the last 15 years, he served in his home country and overseas. And the whole time he's been serving, he's been serving from an administrative capacity. So it's a fascinating look at the missionary life from that perspective. We spend the majority of the time talking about transition, transitioning from the home country to the field, and then from the field to the home country. And what are the effects on the family? And what are the different practical things one has to go through as they're thinking about moving their family to the field or moving their your family from the field to the home country? I really enjoyed this conversation. My host is a very intelligent intelligent and humble person and I think you're really going to benefit from it. I was just thinking about this first question is like how did you get into missions? I know like I was I was young. I was uh, I, I did a two-year missions trip and while I was on that trip I was basically like begging God to send me back mm-hmm. to the Middle East. I wanted to go long term. I wanted to learn the language, wanted to learn the culture. But your story is quite different from this. You were called about 15 years ago uh, into missions. Walk me through that. What was that? What did that look like for you? Yeah, actually, I would say the calling was more like 23 years ago, 22, 23 years ago. My wife and I went on our first ever short-term mission trip to India in 1999. I think we both felt like we had a prompting for something longer when we came back, but I had more than a prompting. I was leading a Bible study in our church, local church, and uh, we got to the Joseph story in Genesis, and the Lord spoke to me as clearly as he ever has through the scripture that we had seven years to prepare to leave the commercial business corporate world and get ready to be long-term missionaries. So we we literally um, got busy paying off our house, which was actually the only debt we really had, but just in preparing spiritually, emotionally, mentally to be long-term missionaries. And we always thought that that would be pioneering something in India. And then somebody at some stage explained to me that where God captures your heart is not necessarily where he's going to have you serve. But uh, we saw that emphasis. We, we started trying to move toward uh, joining another organization to serve in India in the fall of 2005. So we were now like six and a half years into the seven years from the Genesis story. And it just started falling apart. There were three, th- I won't go into all the details, but there were three things that... Um, language training and some issues with the family that we were going to serve with in India. And um, so not long after that, in early, we started thinking maybe we're just supposed to stay in the corporate world and give, you know, support other missionaries. Um, Mm. But our organization came along, the one that we ended up serving with came along in early 2006, responded to some information we had put out on a website for sort of second career people that are looking to missions as a second career. And one thing led to another. God changed our paradigm for what it meant to serve in missions and that it could actually be in the U.S. in a home office. And uh, Hmm. that, that, that happened actually through an interview process with the organization that we joined. And the rest is history, as they say. What were you doing before you joined missions? 
my wife and I both were in the business world. She for about 10 years before our first daughter was born. And for me, it was 26 years. Um, I served with three different global, large, not household names, but large corporations um, in the oil industry, in the glass making industry, and in the auto parts industry. And all those, all those years were in mostly finance, but um, some HR, but definitely all administrative roles in the corporate world, which is mostly what we've done also in the missions world. I think this is very fascinating because I think when we think of a missionary, when missions comes to mind, we think of maybe the 1040 window or... <laughs> church planting in places where there are no believers, but maybe we don't think so much about the reality of what's going on behind the scenes. Was that ever a tension for for you? Yes. Like I said, uh, the Lord really had to change my paradigm because I I had that perspective that it needed to be out on the frontier in a pioneering, you know, reaching heathens for the Lord. (laughs) Uh, yeah, I, yeah. I, I certainly had that perspective as well. I mean, we we had experienced some pretty radical evangelism in India um, on that trip that I mm. mentioned in 1999, and so that that was really our only. And then I went back to India twice with my church after that led led trips, short term, two weeks or less, and um, so that was really our only exposure. And you know, we weren't. We, in fact, we had to be convinced even to go on that first short-term trip. We weren't really interested in missions. We were interested in climbing the corporate ladder um, as as mm. believers, but um, God really had to change our paradigm about what it meant to be a missionary for sure. It's kind of trendy now in missions to talk about scatter or cloud or business as missions yeah. and to think like, I'm taking my skill and I'm going to use that in the mission field. That's like the kind of what's the the buzz of the mission or of missions, the missions world right now. But in a very real sense, you've been doing this for the last 15 years. You've been using your skills in missions, just not on the front lines, right? Yeah. And I mean, you could argue, yeah, I suppose even in South Africa, it wasn't really front lines, although we did get out to the front lines more regularly than we can in the U.S., but I think it's a little bit different in that we still, you know, raised support in the traditional sense, and a lot of what is being Mm. talked about now is going and actually getting a job that you're getting paid for. So that's probably the biggest difference as I know it, but uh, every time I get an audience in a church, I always encourage the administrative people in in the church, in the audience, to, if the if they have any inkling whatsoever that God is calling them, uh, don't neglect to c- consider using the skills. The you know God created each of us individually and uniquely, and gave us and equipped us, and has through our life experiences equipped us for whatever it is that He has for us. And it may or may not be going. I think everybody should be involved in missions if they're a believer, but. Um, I just always tell people, if you have any inkling at all that God might want to use you in missions, don't neglect to consider the skills that you already have in the administrative areas, because every single mission organization that I know of, and I hear it all the time, is looking for more finance people, more IT people, more HR people. Hmm. Uh, it's just it's a it's a common refrain, and has been for the whole fifteen years that I've been in missions myself. Was that hard for you to leave the corporate world and raise support? Was that a humiliating activity going from making money to asking people for money? Well, I wouldn't say that it was humiliating, but it was hard. (laughs) I had, it took me quite a long time, even probably up until the day we joined to get my head around uh, giving up that uh, regular dependable paycheck for, and, and, rely on people's generosity. But I was I was never humiliated by it, probably because God had prepared me for those seven years to do mm. it. In fact, when, when the organization came along and once my paradigm was, well, even before my paradigm was changed, they, I, I guess the big hiccup that they had had, I joined the organization as the CFO for the U.S. Home Office, and um, I guess the big hiccup they had had was they had had lots of candidates but no one wanted to raise support and so when they asked me i said well mm. 
you know, we thought we were going to do it to go to India anyway, so it's not a big deal. It's not a big difference to me. At the same time, you know, once the time got closer, now I, it was an amazing thing that God did. Uh, I lost my job literally a month almost to the day before we joined the organization, the missions organization. Hmm. And because of that, I also received a six month severance package. So, I was literally being, I was literally, and my company car, by the way, (laughs) Um, I (laughs) I was literally being paid by my former uh, corporate employer for the first five months after we were living on support. Oh, amazing. There There were people in our church, sorry, a person in our church and my wife's sister who were actually praying that I would get fired so that I would be eligible for the severance package it happened on january 31st and we started on march 1st wow incredible (laughs) did you find it hard to raise support for an administrative job in the u.s no in fact one of my friends that i was doing short-term mission training with with another organization at the time he was joining that organization and, and we were just i guess interviewing or about to start on the journey with um, our organization. He told me one time when we were together, I'll never forget this, he told me, people are not going to support you to pay the garbage bill. And I was like, Hmm. man, is that what he thinks of, you know, (laughs) what I've been doing for the last 26 years? So, Hmm. um, but we, people, we had been in the same church for 13 years, had served um, really... Uh, before we had children, we had really, uh, my wife and I had both served a lot in a lot of different capacities. And people saw, I think they saw the journey and saw God changing our hearts and changing our trajectory. And so I, I just, I really believe, and I tell people all the time when I do training on partner development, if God's called you, he will make a way. And hmm. um, that's not to say it's not work and that it's, not hard work sometimes, but um, I just I really believe that if if God has prepared you and equipped you and, and called you, that He's also going to prepare the way. And I tell people that. Amen. Yeah, and I think people seeing your life before you made the jump into missions and seeing that you were already ministering, you were already serving, you were already like they saw your they saw your life. I think that's a beautiful thing that it wasn't this like just random hey we want to go into missions but you were already serving where you were at i think that's a beautiful thing what about the role of your wife i know you've discussed some of these questions with her uh so i'll just combine my thoughts and her input so we joined the organization together and we've always seen it that way always felt like we were serving together even when she didn't have an official role with the, the ministry, and there have been times when she did have official roles. So, but an- another important part of what she has done during this journey is she has just now, like a couple months ago, finished homeschooling our three kids from kindergarten through high school. So, stateside and, wow. and in South Africa. But <laughs> while she was doing that, she has also had a few formal roles, mostly kind of short term. None of them were for too long, I think probably two or three years at the most. Um, but she she did housekeeping and hospitality for our stateside ministry. She was the team life leader, so getting people together once a month on the team uh, when we were in South Africa. And then she and I have done some uh, ministry partner development coaching together, people that were actually raising their support. And also, of course, in her in our interactions with individual and church partners, she's been very engaged in that. And we we actually built a flat on the back of our house in South Africa the first two years that we were there so that we could host people and have them in, their, in our home and they would have a separate place to enter and exit and uh, we love doing that, and she—that was primarily her. I mean, I was in—I star- was in charge of the construction, which was a miserable <laughs> experience. <laughs> but but uh, once once the flat was built, we we loved having some. We I think the longest we had people was like three months. Hmm. We we loved having people, whether it was overnight or and she she did all that. Hopefully, we'll get if we have time, we're gonna get to some characteristics 
of long-term workers. And I think hospitality is definitely one of them. I think a mark, maybe a mark of a good missionary is hospitality, whatever that looks like. Maybe it's a mark of a good Christian. I don't know. It it is a Christian uh, command in the New Testament. Yeah, no, I think perhaps both, but I, I would say it's more generic than missionary. I think hospitality is definitely something that has been burned in our hearts, probably mostly because, uh, well, just for example, we had this phenomenal family in here in the U.S. that every time we came home on furlough, they let us live in their basement. And um, I think wow. one of our furloughs got extended by two months from what was planned for three months to be five months. And um, I think collectively, we figured over the the probably seven years right before we left for South Africa and right after we got back, that we've stayed more than six months in their home. Incredible. Uh, we, it's just been modeled. And then when we got first got to South Africa, mm. we had two different places to stay with other either with other families or in their homes while they were away. And it's just been modeled for us in, in a way that we wanted to be able to do that for others as well. I know as a single guy that... Living, living on the field, and then also when I'm back in the States and traveling and going to churches and so on, I know how valuable hospitality mm. is for me as well. Switching gears a little bit, you and I had the opportunity a couple of days ago to talk very briefly about transition. You and your family transitioned from the States to South Africa and then back from South Africa to the States. And I think this thing of transition is something that every cro- every cross-cultural worker goes through twice, you know, exactly yeah. what you did. Yeah. We go out in transition and then everybody, whether it's one year or 50 years later, you're going to transition back to your home country at some point. Yeah. So I'd like to, I, I, I thought as soon as we were done with our, I think we had seven minutes in <laughs> this little interview we were doing and I texted you immediately afterwards and I said, yo, we have to do this for longer. We, we need more time to unpack this. So I'm glad we get that time now. Tell me, what were some of the biggest challenges you had moving your family of five from the U.S. to South Africa back in 2013? Yeah, I think the biggest thing, my, my uh, catchphrase is that it's a logistics nightmare. Um, it's just the, <laughs> the timing of it all is so critical and there's so many moving mm. parts. So if you think about it, and I, th- I think a lot of people have not ever really stopped to pause it and think what a huge undertaking it actually is, especially with a family. But even if it's a single person or a couple, the factors are maybe not all that different. So you per- perhaps have a, and we did, have a house to sell on one side, uh, we, two cars to either sell or give away on the leaving side, furniture, and then figuring out what you're going to sell and what you're just going to give away. Some of it probably can't be sold. Mm. At least in our case, that was true. Uh, we had <laughs> nobody wanted. We it. had accumulated a lot of things that probably not too many people wanted. But then, uh, in our case, again, preparing to buy a house on the other side, so we had to arrange and pack and load and ship a container of household goods, which, by the way, is going to take approximately sixty days in transit across the ocean. So that wow. that timing has to be planned for. You have to do without on one side or the other or both. And so you have to have temporary, you know, the big thing is beds. What are you going to sleep in? Um, so air mattresses mm-hmm. and the like. And then on the other side, the same things. You have to buy, in our case, we bought a house in South Africa. You have to buy cars on the other side, buy or bring furniture. And then uh, you also have the factor of um, ranging bank accounts and phones and utilities for the home and vehicle permits for the cars in a country that you may or may not speak the language. <laughs> a big issue for us was finding temporary accommodation while we were looking for a house to buy there. And we had to do that from mm. the U.S. I mean, we couldn't very well just take our three kids and go and not have a place to live temporarily. So fortunately, that worked out uh, quite well for us. We ultimately stayed in the house of a family uh, that was coming back to the U.S. on furlough. And I think we stayed in their house for three or four months while while we bought a house and moved in. But we were warned that it would take six to 12 months to adjust to living in South Africa. It was actually about... Hmm probably close to two years. I, I remember my, we, were sitting on, wow. we were sitting on the plane coming home for our first furlough in 2015. And I remember my wife clearly saying to me, can you imagine 
if we had only committed for two years and we were coming home. Mm, interesting. If we were coming home now permanently, just as South Africa starts feeling like home to us. And we were both like, no, that, wow. that would be so depressing. And so we, we really um, tried to embrace the culture as quickly as we could. But, but it, it, it was probably close to two years before it really felt like home. That is super interesting. And I, I want to go deeper into that. But before that, I just want to go back to this container. This may be a small <laughs> thing, but I'm curious to know, how did you decide we're, we want to ship our things as opposed to we want to just start from scratch right. in South Africa? Right. That's a great question. Um, and we did really, we, uh, we asked a couple of other people that had made a similar transition. In our case, our friends had gone to New Zealand and come back and, and they were part of our team in the US before we went. And uh, they actually had not ever, it was just a couple, no kids, and they had actually not ever done the container, but they gave us sort of pros and cons for both from their perspective. We just decided in the end that uh, we were going to move over like our mostly our bedroom furniture and that and we, we probably ended up giving away or, or selling about two-thirds of our stuff. Uh, furniture, I mean. And um, so we took a half container over and, and planned to bring a full container back. So these are the containers that you see on the back of um, semi-trucks going down the road. Um, yeah. I mean, they're rail, rail cars is what they really are on the back of a truck. We decided in our situation, and every situation is different, that it would be best for us because we had a lot of old junky furniture that we would just buy new furniture except for our mostly our bedroom stuff in South Africa and then bring it back with us it's not it's not uh, mm -hmm. I think when we left it was about four or five thousand dollars to ship a container and when we came back almost seven years later it was more like six thousand or so six or seven thousand so it's not it's not an easy decision but we we just decided by the time we bought you know mostly newer furniture when we were there and came back it would be more cost effective to bring it back rather than try to sell it that was how we decided but another just kind of like nuts and bolts question is about homeschooling you mentioned that your wife homeschooled from kindergarten to high school you were three kids I'm wondering, like, were you guys homeschooling already before you left for South Africa? Yes. How did you guys make those decisions, like the schooling decisions? Well, the schools in South Africa actually are not very good. You, you would, most Americans would want to put their kids in private schools in South Africa if you were going to do that. But we had already, you know, our, our kid, our oldest was almost 13 when we left to go to South Africa. So our kids had already been homeschooled you know, up to that stage all their life. And so I guess our 12-year-old was probably in sixth grade. With the schools not being good and because we had already sort of bought into the whole idea of homeschooling, it was just kind of a no-brainer for us. It was another factor. Schools were another factor that we didn't have to deal with. You mentioned that it took about two years for you guys to kind of get settled and to feel like South Africa is home. And I know when there is a lot of loss involved when we move overseas there's you know i i know for me personally i have many brothers and, and a sister and i have missed so much of their lives i've missed so much of the lives of my nephews and nieces i've missed my parents growing older uh, and it's it's incredibly challenging, uh, just the amount of loss that we have. But we also have the loss on the other side where I've also lost e extraordinary friends on the field who've transitioned out and so on. The, the work of or the life of a of a of a, of a missionary is full of uh, is full of personal losses, isn't it? What what did that kind of look like for you guys? Yeah, well, I think there's. Um several factors that you can think about that from but um, certainly family is the biggest one I, I think I don't know if it's literally true but I've heard that missionaries leave the field typically either because of money or family or or they never get there. I guess they never get there what I've heard is they that the biggest reason that people never go even though they feel called is because of family 
and then they either hmm. they usually either come off because of money or family. Um, but you know, if you think about uh, what you left in terms of and family is definitely the biggest, and I'll, I'll get to that in a second. But just simple things like. Um, grieving the loss of American things. So sports, I'm a huge baseball mm. fan, a uh, big Atlanta Braves fan, and um, just giving up, you know, sports on television was a huge thing for me. Mm. American holidays, you know, Thanksgiving doesn't exist in most other countries. That's a unique, it's a <laughs> uniquely, right. and we and we love Thanksgiving as a family, and so we, we would have thanksgiving and at first we would just celebrate with americans and then after a while we opened it up to other <laughs> other people um from other countries that were just curious about experiencing an american thanksgiving fourth of july obviously is a big american holiday in the, it's exclusively an american holiday in the middle of the summer so you know th those were a couple of things sports and holidays and then friends I think that probably wasn't as big of a deal for us because we made new friends quickly. We get we got involved in the church that we stayed in on the second Sunday that we were in South Africa, and we made and I think by week six we were in a home group and um, you know really having close community. And we we did have one couple from the states who still probably our best friends who visited us four times in six and a half years. So that was amazing. Wow. That was amazing. And they would come and take us on holiday too. So take us someplace really nice <laughs> that that's a blessing that they wanted to go to and they didn't want to go alone. So they would take us. Uh, the biggest thing though, by far was uh, my mom actually died of pancreatic cancer while we were on the field in 20. Mm -hmm. She was, di wow. she was diagnosed literally the last week less than a week that uh we were in the states for our first furlough and um, then she they they gave her four to six months to live and she actually lived about seven and a half so i one of the big blessings in that was i mean it was incredibly painful to have her um dying while we were overseas but and and knowing that she was going to die um but we, I had the opportunity to come back three times. So right after her diagnosis, I came back and just hung out with her for like 17 days. It was phenomenal. Um, and, and my brother pointed out, um, I think after she died, that we had this huge blessing as a family that we got to say everything and do everything with mom that we wanted to in her last six months of living. And, and some people don't get that, you know, somebody goes out and dies in a car accident and it, they're just gone. And, um, hmm. so it, it was a blessing. Mom was a committed believer, um, a witnessing fool the last six months of her life. I mean, she had, she had all she had in-home hospice and so all these people were many of them believers but coming to visit her and she just witnessed her heart she would say i can't wait to get to heaven and see jesus and she yeah and she told us kids the only time that i'm sad is when i see you all crying and um, so she, she was excited about seeing jesus and meeting him face to face and but it was hard um, she and my sister would get on a phone call we had kind of a cool phone set up in south africa that we somebody told us about that we planned ahead of time and so it worked through the internet even b before any of these kind of calls like we're on today existed and um so i i would talk to her during the time that she was sick uh and she wasn't really that sick it was only at the end um, but I, we talked about three times a week, and then I made those three visits, including her last birthday before she died. So it was it was good in the end, but difficult as well. Uh, was there any sense of loss for your children? Did they experience anything in those areas? I think, or, or maybe you want to answer the question moving back to the U.S. as well. Uh, coming back to the U.S. definitely was challenging. Ours was our reentry was uh, challenged further by COVID. Um, we came back. Mm -hmm. uh, my wife and the kids came back three weeks before I did. I was still winding down the sale of our house, and so they came back in late, like almost literally the last day of January of 2020. And I came back three weeks later, the third week of February. And so, as everyone knows, that was like less than a month before COVID hit. 
And so then, you know, we were all locked up in our houses. There was no church. There was no youth group. Our kids were incredibly involved Mm. in youth group. They, They loved going to youth group at our church in South Africa on Friday nights. And so there was no church. Uh, they weren't in school anyway. No youth group. They couldn't get even get back in touch or face-to-face with their friends if they wanted to. And that was challenging anyway because everybody's lives had moved on after seven years. And so they did really well in the foreign culture. They, they, they were not thrilled about going in 2013 initially, but they made friends quickly. And they definitely did not want to return in 2020. I mean, it, it was just, <laughs> I, I, I felt like when we went, the Lord had said to me five to six years. And that was mostly based on the age of our kids and when they would go to college. And our oldest, mm, yeah. our oldest daughter ended up taking a gap year. She was a horse jumping competitor in South Africa, which was one of the things that we were able to afford that was really reasonable in South Africa that she couldn't have probably done in America because of the expense. And so she took a gap year after high school, after she finished homeschool high school and really embraced the horse jumping culture there and did pretty well. So we stayed an extra year. It ended up being six and a half (laughs) when the time, so I had been praying about it. And when the time came and I sort of broke the news to the family that I thought it was time that we needed to come back to the States our kids and my wife <laughs> nearly excommunicated me from the family. <laughs> um, but it was, it was really tough. I think mostly because of COVID and just, you know, every, everybody's life. And I think that's something that we realized through our furloughs sort of, sort of a foreshadowing was people's lives were moving on. And so were ours. And you're all, mm. you know, when there's this seven year gap between when you left and when you come back, um, everybody's lives have moved on. Their kids have gone off to college or whatever, and and life is just different. And it's you can't just immediately. I mean, some people you can, but not every. But not most people you can't just immediately lock back in and reconnect. And what did that process look like for you guys? It's been two and a half years now. Right. Yeah. How has the how has the transition, the re-entry, been for you guys now? I think everybody's doing well now. My son, in particular, went through a pretty deep depression in the summer of twenty. Mm-hmm. Again, in the heart of COVID, but it took him probably a year and a half after we got back. He was probably the longest, and a couple of other family members kind of struggled as well for not as long and not as deeply. Everyone's, I think, doing well now. The oldest two are in university. One's about to start her junior year, and one's about to start his sophomore year. And um, our oldest daughter did probably better because she had university to look forward to only a few months after we Mm -hmm. got, she was starting only after a few months after we got back. But I think, you know, they're all, it just, it it took some time and getting through COVID. And what was really instrumental in my son coming sort of out of his funk was uh, he continued walking with the Lord. And that was the only thing that made us not really worried about his eventual outcome. But he got then connected with a youth group with one of his friends from before we went to South Africa. After COVID kind of relented in the summer of 2020 a bit and churches started opening back up. And that youth group, we owe a huge debt to that youth group leader and the youth group who really helped him walk through that. When you guys were on the field and then maybe even coming back. I know we have this term, the TCK, the third cultural kid, the third culture kid, this person who is part of one culture and also part of another culture. Even if that culture is the missionary expat culture overseas, did you guys have any conversation with you, any conversations with your kids about what it's like being a third culture kid, or did you read any material about this or look into this at all while you guys were overseas or before or after? I think uh, we had a, a little orientation. I think it was two half days from our ministry before we left, which eventually um, at the end of that, all five of us were in tears, <laughs> uh, wow. which was kind of a big sob fest about, so they did a great job of preparing us for grief and leaving our home culture. Um, other than that, I would say we probably should have done more, uh, but we didn't. <laughs> uh, 
but but um, I think the the thing for us was that my wife and I both just emphasized the adventure aspect of it and that the unique mm. opportunity it was to go and experience a, a different way of life, a different culture, people maybe with a different worldview. And we just emphasized the unique blessing that it was going to be and the, the broader perspective that we were all going to have from living outside of our home country, which was really turned mm. out to be very true. Um, and I think because of that, our kids, like the oldest two, have already tried and wanted <laughs> to go back to South Africa. I think they're probably both going to go at, <laughs> at Christmas this year to visit their friends. I think the, especially wow. the oldest two and and uh, and all of them really made good friends. The older two, better friends, probably lifelong friends with people in South Africa that they've stayed in touch with. So, And we, we've talked with them about where they've, I guess probably said back to us that maybe they're going to feel unsettled at more times like they already have in the future and that they may not want to live or work in one place too long they kind of realize that they're kind of <laughs> kind of global nomads maybe mm. that that you know they may just not want to settle down and be in one place for their whole life like a lot of people do so they they've processed it i think mm. and we certainly think, and people tell us all the time, that the experience our kids had was uh, phenomenally amazing for their for their wow. perspective and their worldview, and it's so much broader than most people get. Mm, yeah. I interviewed a third culture kid, a kid who grew up on the field. He's a man now who grew up on the field as a missionary's kid, and he described it as being a invisible refugee. He said that being back in his home country, he was different than everyone else, but he looked the same as everyone else and he was expected to be the same as everyone else. But actually internally, he was this vastly different person because of his overseas experiences. I thought this term of invisible refugee was so powerful to describe mm. maybe what it's like for these globe-trotting children of missionaries <laughs> yeah. as they come back and they've experienced so much more than 98 percent of everyone else their age has right absolutely totally agree with that makes me wish i i was a tck but uh, <laughs> never mind <laughs> I'm, I'm wondering like when it comes to changes in the home i know like in one sense you're going from the states to south africa back to the states and we've talked about a lot of external things that have that change with that. You you mentioned like people, uh, people's lives moving on. You know, after seven years, people grow up and they move in different directions. Their lives look different. Of course, yours looks different as well because of all the things that you've done and all the experiences you've had. But I'm wondering, like in the family, in the home, what are the things that stayed the same, and maybe what were, were some of the things that changed because of your situation? Well, let, let's. Just just talk about the things that really didn't change first um the work environment for me was pretty similar i mean i was still working in a pretty nice office in a pretty first world looking office but mm. I'll, I'll say a little bit more about that in a second but um you know so the work environment wasn't that different it was still with a missions organization still in an office environment still in an administrative environment just in a different country and most almost everybody well i think everybody in the office spoke some english so uh, we didn't have the challenge of language although there were many more languages spoken there than we spoke in south africa uh, the church and the believing community was pretty similar. We got involved in a great church, a very evangelical church. It was a little bit more diverse probably than our home churches had been, but other than that, it was pretty similar. And we, we had great friends. We didn't have trouble making friends. I think part of that was um, people were, were just fascinated to meet an American. Many of them had never known really an American. They had maybe seen them or... Uh, and the interesting thing about South Africa <laughs> that was maybe kind of similar, they know they know American television, they know American movies. Um, they're quite familiar with at least what the media presents as our culture. What changed? Mm. Well, I described it as where <laughs> where the third world and the first world collide. So, and my best example of that is 
three kilometers from our house was the fifth largest mall in the southern hemisphere very very mm. very first world very modern about 15 kilometers in the other direction was a, a, a township of a million people living in the most abject poverty you would ever want to experience mm. and so you have these cultures oh. that are side by side literally in the same geographic area you know probably less than 20 kilometers apart and they are so different and we you know we had never e mm. experienced anything like that um, much more relaxed culture. One of the things we loved about it was the relax. So our home group would meet every, yeah. every second Sunday and we would share from right after church in the morning until sometimes five or 6 PM in the evening together at someone's home, share, share the afternoon meal together. And then just usually talked about the sermon, had some time of focused prayer and it was awesome. We loved it. Uh, the time to get things done was incredibly longer. So anytime you had to go for any kind of a permit or a phone or to get utilities set up or anything like that, it took hours usually. And so yeah, you yeah. would plan a half a day sometimes to go do something as simple as get your, your uh, car registered. Uh, and it was very frustrating. Oh, I trust me. I, I know what that's like. <laughs> I, I think I spent three hours trying to pay my electricity bill yesterday. <laughs> so, uh, and that was, you know, for Americans that are used to efficiency and effectiveness, that, that was pretty difficult. Uh, probably the biggest thing, the biggest um, personal thing was uh, safety. And we were warned about that. Mm. It, I think it was probably overplayed a little bit in our, and maybe that's only because we, praise God, never had a serious incident, but so fences and alarms and spikes on the top of fences and barbed wire and security um, people coming to check on your house when the alarm went off, those, those all became part of our world that had never been before. And um, we certainly knew people who had had home invasions and close calls. Um, we didn't know anybody personally that was killed, but we knew people who had friends who had home invasions where people were killed or seriously injured. Um, so that was a big deal. Uh, like I said, m many more languages. I think there's maybe seven official languages in South Africa and it's regional. Um, so some members of our family picked up bits and pieces of some languages, but, but like I said, English was pretty predominantly spoken. So we didn't re really have to learn a language. The holidays were different. Already talked about that a little bit. The school calendar goes uh, January through November, with December being sort of a all-out national holiday. And um, <laughs> uh, everybody, everybody goes to the beach in December. Everybody. I mean, we were the the, wow. the city literally clears out. <laughs> there are very <laughs> few people left that aren't at the beach. Um, and, and so the school calendar is different. Instead of starting in August or September, it starts in January. And then um, the, the legal driving age is 18, so, so none of our kids really... I mean, our oldest daughter learned to drive. She had a permit but never got her license. Um, the teenage kids' ability to work and make money is almost non-existent in South Africa. So that was a big disappointment for our kids. They were really looking forward to that when we came back to the States. And, of course, mm -hmm. wild animals, so lions and elephants and giraffes, um, not not wa not walking <laughs> the streets or in the backyard as some people think, but <laughs> uh, we certainly enjoyed the occasional sightings. We we drove every well, I drove every year t up to Zambia in our vehicle and pulled a trailer, which was quite an adventure. Two uh, thirteen to sixteen hour days in a row in the car, mm. um, but we we would see lions and elephants and giraffes and things alongside the road, and that was cool. And um, then there's always the what. Americans call safaris, or we call game drives. Difference being, Americans are charged 150 to 200 dollars a head to <laughs> go in a jeep on a safari, but you can actually do it in your own vehicle for about five bucks. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, There's a little life hack for you. So, so um, we we laughed along with the South, along with the South Africans at the Westerners that came and paid <laughs> 150 or 200 dollars to go see wild animals when you could do it in your own vehicle for almost free. And then our kids got a pool and a dog. 
because pools are very common, South Africa being very warm, that was one of the sort of commitments we made to our kids ahead of time, that we would try our best to find our, a house with a pool and that we would get them the dog that they always wanted. So <laughs> it's It's interesting, like you mentioned a lot of really cool things. Having a house, uh, like a nice house, a pool, a dog, getting to go on safaris, the beach, uh, and so on. Some of these differences you mentioned were all like super nice. Did you, did you ever, like, experience times not just in South Africa but over these last fifteen years, where you just wanted to throw in the towel, where you were just like, I'm done with this. I want out. My answer to that is no, never. <laughs> wow and, and it's, amen it's, it's an honest answer we we have been so blessed by the generosity of partners and and we see them i i hate the term supporter um mm. i always try to use the term partner because we really believe that the people some of the i i would even say most of our partners have been with us for the whole 15. We started raising our partner team in um, 20, uh, sorry, 2006 and joined in 2007. So it's actually been more like 16 and a half years. Some mm -hmm. of us started, I mean, some of them started giving uh, almost immediately after we shared our story and w what God had called us to do. We've had a wonderful experience both in the U.S. and in South Africa. Wouldn't trade it for anything. Um, has it always been easy? No, but we've never struggled um, financially. We've never struggled with calling. Um, we hmm. believe that God, like I said, shared earlier, we believe that God prepared us really for seven years to make the shift. Making the shift was the hardest thing, but... Being in ministry, being in ministry has been a huge blessing. Wow, I'm really encouraged by your answer. I didn't know what your answer was going to be beforehand, and I'm really encouraged by it. And I, I wonder, like, are you, uh, would you consider yourself, okay, I'm not going to, I was going to ask you if you consider yourself a natural optimist, a, a nat, nat, natural optimist, optimist. but actually, I, I actually don't care. I think it's more, I think what what's more important is maybe going into uh, characteristics of uh, a missionary. So let me rephrase my question. Uh, I'm, I'm laughing because I'm my, my wife will tell you that I'm an eternal pessimist. <laughs> 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 I'm not. I am. I am far from an optimist. But it, it okay, has been, interesting. It, it has been a huge blessing. Okay, so let me ask you: How do you present? How do you prevent yourself from cynicism? How have you present, prevented yourself from cynicism, which is like the death of hope, the inability to kind of enjoy what God has put in front of you? How have you prevented cynicism over these years? Well, I find myself asking, what would I be cynical about? Because it's mm -hmm. honestly been it's honestly been a huge blessing to to me. Uh, professionally, to our family, to my wife and I, 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 I have trouble thinking about what would I be cynical about. It hasn't been okay. We gave up the American dream and climbing the ladder, but <laughs> was that really was that really good for mm. us anyway? Um, mm. You know, we we haven't struggled financially. God has provided for us. He's been super faithful. I just don't know what I would be cynical about. Honestly, I'm not trying to be flip or something, but I just. I, there's nothing. I don't. I don't know what it would be. Amen. I love it. I love it. Don't uh, don't try to excuse a beautiful <laughs> answer. Uh, amen. I'm I'm rejoicing on this side of the microphone. I'm wondering, like, when it comes to characteristics, good characteristics, or characteristics of a worker that's going to keep you going over the long term. What are some things that maybe you see? that are going to create that kind of positive sustainability over the years? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I, I think my, I've been asked this question before. I think humility actually is at the top of the list, especially if you're going to go to, maybe it's not as important in the U.S., but maybe so too. But 
especially if you're going to go to another country. My my boss in the ministry in South Africa was a Zambian guy. He has a very different <laughs> perspective on life from almost mm. every aspect. And so falling mm. under someone else's leadership, another uh, another nationality in in another country. And I was in South Africa, he was in Zambia. So it mm. wasn't like we were in the same place together very often, maybe three times a year four times a year, but I think just being able to be humble enough to fall under others' leadership. And I, I found that on mm. the short term, uh, in the short term experience too, that that was a big characteristic of people that did well versus people that didn't do well was the people that went on a short term team and thought they were going to tell others mm. how it was going to be done rather than falling under the the local national people's leadership. Um, they, they didn't do so well if they were going to go try to tell people how they should do things, especially missions in their country. And then I, I think just a willingness to be obedient to what God's hmm. calling is and not your own motivations. And that's probably part of humility as well. But just the obedience factor of it doesn't have to be the way that I want it to be. And God's will is really better for me than my own will. And then I, I often fall back on the, the FAT acronym, the flexible, adaptable, and teachable. I think those are all uh, yeah. flexibility. Flexibility especially is really important, really, really important when you're living in a different culture for sure. Yeah, I like that that your definition of humility or part of your definition of humility was the ability to be led by somebody who's culturally very different from you. I think right. that's very beautiful. And I think a lot of teams are actually cross-cultural teams. And there is a lot of need for humbly submitting yourself in, like to somebody who's culturally very different from you. And that, and that honestly, that's, that's not always easy either. Even, even if you've made up your mind that, you know, that I'm, I'm going to be that way, it's not always easy when you have differences of perspective and opinion and the way you think things should go with that other leader or other leaders from a different sometimes it's it's hard you just have to <laughs> you know remind yourself that you have to lay it down yeah and also sometimes just for me just remembering that i'm not in charge this person's in charge it's okay that he's in charge I will listen to what he says. <laughs> you know, ultimately, he, it's it's going to fall back on his shoulders, not on mine. I have two more questions for you. Sure. And one is about uh, ministry partnership, building ministry uh, partners, and the other is about missions and administrative work. I love these two questions. Uh, you've been doing you've been doing ministry development, and uh, maybe you could tell us a little bit, bit about that. Uh, and maybe talk to us about where you see missionaries struggling with maintaining and developing partnerships. Well, I think overall, I just I think there's a methodology. I, maybe it's because I'm an administrative kind of finance thinking kind of guy, but I think there's a methodology to ministry partner development. We call it MPD for short, so I might might use that. And I think the bottom line is it, it's not so much that it has to be a methodology, and some people don't like that idea. But some practices are helpful, and others can be not helpful or counterproductive. And I think training is a Im very important aspect of that. And I, I think maybe the reason that I, and I do enjoy it, um, I think maybe the reason for that is because I feel like I was trained very well by oh. a guy in the U.S. who had actually developed MPD training and then I also had the opportunity at one stage to go to another large uh, mission organization's week-long training, which was incredibly helpful. That was years after we had joined, but it still gave me perspective. And most people just seem not to like it. I think, honestly, that's why they struggle. And I think it's usually, in mm. my opinion, because they weren't trained well. And so most I, people you think don't like the like raising support, maintaining yes. relationships with their part with their financial partners. Is that is that what you mean? Well, I think it's especially the initial <laughs> fundraising. 
that they don't mm-hmm. like. I, I don't know that it's so much. I think most people that I know seem to like engaging with people after <laughs> that initial. And for most of us, there's an initial six or 10. In our case, it was 10 months, six or 10 or 12 or 18 months push where you have mm-hmm. lots of meetings with lots of people and you ask them to pray about being part of your team. And some people see that as begging. I've, I really encourage people, don't ever think about it as begging. Somebody said to me, one of the leaders of the ministry here in the U.S., right as we were starting down this path of ministry partner development, he said in a training session, I will never apologize for asking God's people for God's resources for God's purposes. And that struck so Amen. Um, that and then the other thing is the idea, and this came to me a bit later from another leader in the area. Uh, we're inviting people into an opportunity to be personally involved in the Great Commission, and for many of them, it's the mm-hmm. only one that they're ever going to have is being partnered up with a missionary, whether it's stateside or foreign, on a pioneering field, wherever it is. If we can think about it as inviting people into an opportunity to be personally engaged, involved in the Great Commission, it changed for me. It changes. I mean, that was catalytic for me in changing my perspective. And then, uh, same guy that shared that last thing shared that seventy-five. And this was years ago, uh, probably ten years ago. Seventy-five percent of Americans have never been asked to personally partner with a missionary. And so his point was, if it if it's that low in America, which is either the largest or second largest mission missionary sending country in the world, how low is it in all the other countries, all the other Western mm-hmm. nations where it may not be as predominant? So all those things, I just think if people can get, for me, what I've observed, um, people particularly don't like that initial... Uh, and it, it's hard work. I always tell them it's hard work, but hmm. like in our case, we're experiencing, we're reaping the the reward of that hard work done mostly in 2006. Now in in 2022, and for all those years in between, like I think I said, probably more than half of our partners have been with us for the whole time. I, I think it's that initial thrust that people particularly don't like. It's interesting how much we don't like it and at the same time everyone's doing it maybe when we think when we're asking we're the only person who's ever asked for money ever but politicians do it organizations do it charities do it bible schools do it churches do it you know it's it's not almost it's not as foreign a thing as we might think it is as we are moving into the place of asking for money Right. And, uh, you know, if we don't, (laughs) if we don't go and get the gospel to the nations, you know, who, who's going to do it? Yeah. And I like the perspective that you had as well uh, about giving opportunities for people to partner. Maybe you're the only person who's ever asked this person to partner with a missionary to be part of uh, the yes. global body of Christ and the gospel going to where it's never been before. I think that's a valuable thing. I also think like a beautiful thing about being supported and having uh, financially, but also in prayer is just this little thing called a newsletter. I call mine a prayer letter because I actually just want people to pray for me. <laughs> Here's what's going on. Okay, right. pray. And I think it's beautiful that... Uh, most Christians, 99% of Christians, don't have a few hundred people reading their prayer requests and praying right. for them. Right. No, uh, it's huge. But, it's huge. But I but I do. You know, that's an absolutely incredible. What a, what, a, what a privilege to be on that side of things. Yes. I think it's also just a privilege to have people financially invested. I know I love, I, I love being able to help people in financial need here in the country I serve in when I when I'm able to it gives me so much joy and uh yeah yeah to be uh, to to be on the other side of that as well uh, is also a privilege yeah. isn't it no i and one of the things i always tell people when i'm training them is if 
if you know because most of them are just starting or thinking about starting um, if if we haven't become a generous giver and supporter of missionaries before we go try to mm. <laughs> uh, talk to people about it how can we expect them to embrace it if we, if we're not living out that so we mm. you know my wife and I I think we have four five six regular ongoing commitments to missionaries still as missionaries wow. ourselves and wow, I, I just I just think that's super important you know even if it's only one if, if that's what you can afford mm. that's fine but you know I think we should be generously giving as missionaries as well amen to that I think generosity is just uh, generosity is a part of being a Christian just like we were talking about with hospitality this is a part of being a new creation in Christ Jesus and it's a beautiful part of it and maybe it's a part that the world doesn't understand very much as well so let's shine our light out there I want to uh, my last question is about missions administration and measuring success so I am on a church planting team. I do evangelism and discipleship in a in a creative access nation. I know like my gauges for success are, I mean, they're all over the place, but it's like, man, how did I share the gospel with this person? How am I doing in discipling with this person? Am I being a good example for these new believers, et cetera, et cetera, right? Am I am I trying to extend my network of people that I'm that I'm talking to? Am I reaching more lost people? But I wonder like, okay, you're not a church, you're 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 a you're a missionary, but you're not a church planter. You're an administrator. Uh, how do you measure success? What does that look like on your side of things? Well, it's it's an, a great question. It's an interesting question to me for two reasons. Because one of our partner churches insists that we have measurable goals, which I think is a great thing. And uh, the other reason it's interesting to me is because I spent eight years in my corporate uh, previous to missions life helping people in administrative functions figure out how to measure what they do <laughs> and and teaching them mm. you know how to have good metrics for whatever it is they do mm. i don't I, I know some people they don't like the idea that somehow in missions and in the christian working world we should not measure what we do but lots of churches measure baptisms and conversions and uh, okay there's some issues with some of those things because maybe they're not <laughs> Maybe they're not so measurable, but I don't think there's anything wrong with finding, uh, and, and I've tried to do this almost everywhere I go, is finding some simple things to measure. Maybe they're not perfect. You might find something better down the road to measure. So, you know, maybe conversions is not the greatest thing because we can't see people's hearts. Only God can see their heart. I think in almost anything we do, so for example, uh, when uh, we would go on furlough, or even now when we go on a partner trip as stateside missionaries, I have goals for um, who I want to see, how many people I want to see. Mm. And it's just to to put something out there. To it's, it, it's not so much for the measurement, although that can be important, as it is for putting a target out there to, sh to aim for. So you're not just aiming mm. at nothing. <laughs> And certainly when I've been in my administrative roles in missions, we've always had goals, measurable goals for lots of different things, volunteer hours, lots of different things we've, we've measured. And I, it, it's just a, and I always try to tell people, keep it simple. Don't make it, don't make it difficult to measure. Make it something that you can easily, tangibly touch, hopefully. Yeah, I think that's really good. And I think I struggle with the measuring in that sometimes I put my sense of worth and value into the goals I have instead of into Christ himself. I think there is another side of measuring that is re related to obedience. Am I doing what God has called me to do? Right. I think most of the value, as I said, is in having a target. But uh, your point is very well taken that, you know, how do you measure obedience? Well, uh, you probably can at least have some proxy measures for, you know, how how many times or how, how many 
opportunities can I create? And I'm just, I'm imagining mm. outside of, <laughs> outside of my <laughs> capacity, but you know, how many opportunities have I taken to share the gospel or, um, you know, I, I don't, I don't know because I'm not really in that world, but I think there are some proxies for that. Again, with the motivation not being that you don't respond to God in the Holy Spirit and how that He's leading you, but that it gives you something to shoot for. I'm 100% with you. Thanks for being with me today. Well, I hope it's helpful to somebody that's listening somewhere down the road, maybe an administrative person or someone working in the commercial world that is just now being prompted by the Spirit to maybe step out in faith and do something a little different. There's lots of there's lots of need, as I said earlier, there's lots of need in every mission organization that I know of in the world for people to do administrative kinds of things. Wow. Amen to that. I think that is such a good way to end this podcast with the reminder that whatever your skills are, whatever you're good at, you have a place in global missions. Well, I just want to remind you as we come to the end of the podcast that it's okay to be normal. <laughs>